When Mike Kim was in college, he had a run-in with a gang. Next thing I know, I see a beer bottle. Uh, it, it, looked, it looked like slow motion. And it, it uh, smashed across my friend's head. And um, it, he fell down. And next thing I know, there was fists flying. And then, you know, I threw whatever I could. And then next thing I know, uh, I'm on the ground just getting kicked. And I remember this one foot just coming. And I blacked out after that. We get back to my friend's dorm or apartment complex. We, for some reason, wanted to take a cold shower. And we took a shower. We, we get dressed in fresh clothes. And we come out. And um, my friend said he, his head can't stop bleeding. We look at it. It's uh, split wide open in the back from the beer bottle. And you can literally, you know, see a skull. Like, it's, it's bad. And, and uh, my eyes swollen uh, entirely, just exponentially swelling. And they're just saying, you both got to go to hospital. You know, I saw him get, I don't know how many stitches, 20 to 30 in the back of his head in real time. I ended up having a fractured orbital bone. They said if they would have kicked me one more time, I would have lost my eyesight in my left eye, multiple bruised ribs, skin peeled off, like all types of stuff. You know, we had to stay overnight for concussions and uh, just to make sure we didn't pass out and not wake up. What amazes me about Mike is that despite his past trauma, which we'll talk about more later, he's optimistic and warm. When I first met him, he was handing out cookies at a public art event. When I told him about my podcast, he gave me a hug. Kindness is actually the basis of his organization, Some Neat Place, a company that uses creative avenues like fashion, food, music, and art to bring more kindness into the world. Mike learned the power of a kind act from his college girlfriend. I'd say she was my first love. Um, met her college and just dated, and uh, we're together for about almost eight years. Mike says he frequently lied to his girlfriend about partying and drinking with his friends. The night of his attack, Mike and his girlfriend had just gotten into an argument on the phone because he had told her he was at a friend's house, and his girlfriend could hear the noise of the karaoke bar in the background. After he ended up in the hospital, Mike's now ex-girlfriend was one of the first people to visit him. He assumed she'd be furious, but her reaction surprised him. She shows up at the hospital, and the only thing she says to me, she runs up, opens the door, I see her from my right eye, and she runs up to me, and she's crying profusely and asking me if I was okay. And um, in that moment, I knew how to change my life. And... Um, you know, this bravado, this ego, this, uh, this identity that I had that I was protecting my inner child uh, from being bullied for so long, that I was never good enough for my dad. I couldn't belong to the Asian Americans. I couldn't belong to anyone. And I was just trying to find that. And it was that moment. Um, it really did save my life. Stereotypes don't tell the whole story. I'm your host, Annie Prafke, and you're listening to Misfits, a podcast featuring discussions with people who felt like black sheep in their communities because of their identity. 
Mike didn't have an easy childhood. He immigrated from Korea in the early 1980s when he was three years old. He arrived with his family in Riverside, California. The only things that I really remember was, you know, my dad had this concept of the American dream and he would always kind of talk about what we're going to do. And the first thing we did was, of course, stop by McDonald's and he wanted a Big Mac and we had it. But the very first thing I remember was uh, getting off the plane and thinking, you know, well, what a crazy ride that was. First time being on a plane, then you're going across the country. And then I ended up throwing up because it's noxious. And uh, it wasn't a good look, but I think my dad got pissed off at me because I threw up everywhere. And um, But it was great. You know, my first experience getting off the plane and experiencing America was the Golden Arches. So you were pretty young when you came, but uh, I'm guessing from your father and just from media and things, you had a little bit of an idea of what the U.S. would be like. Was the reality different from your image of it or maybe your dad's image of it? You know, it's a, it's a great question, Annie. I think um, back then, uh, we didn't have the internet. Uh, we didn't subscribe to the newspapers here. We didn't even have a TV that would broadcast um, American networking. And so the, the concept of what we had in our head was we can achieve dreams. Everything is greater in America. And there's an abundance amount of wealth and an abundance amount of opportunity. And so where we, my, my dad was just, you know, on another level, just telling us about all the things that we're going to accomplish. And, you know, the story is very deep and personal, of course, but the way we envisioned coming and the way my dad's story told uh, about this opportunity and this experience we're going to have was 180 um, in terms of what we actually experienced. And there was nowhere anywhere um, that would tell us that told us that we're going to face racism. Um, even though my dad faced it during the Vietnam War, he never told us these things. So we're essentially sheltered from the rest of the world. We only knew what Korea was like. And naturally, we're accepted fully. Um, the food and everything was very familiar to us. And so everything, literally everything in America was 180, um, from the food to uh, you know, not understanding language. I only spoke in Korean, of course, when I first landed. So everything was foreign, everything, even the mannerisms and seeing a diverse group of American people from Latinx to uh, Black Americans and just everyone in general was just so new to me. I don't know about my brother or my parents' experience, but it was such a shock. But I was excited. And from what I remember as a kid, I was just excited and curious about the world that I was in. And now from another country away, I mean, the United States of America, where in my mind, uh, the story begins, chapter one of this new life, but definitely didn't turn out anywhere near that I imagined in my head. And what were your experiences like in school? You, you must have started school in California then. Yeah, so we uh, you know, ended up going to Riverside, California. It's where my mom's side of the family ended up staying back in Korea. My dad's side all came across, um, came to California and situated themselves in Riverside, California. And as they were working odd jobs. I started off kindergarten and it was, it was right at that moment, like literally right at that moment where people didn't really see Asian Americans inside the U S I was still on a green card. I was illegal essentially. And so I still didn't know the language. Um, so just as much as people were scared of me, I was scared of them and going to kindergarten. That's when the first 
layers of uh, racism started, uh, you know, get piled on top of me into my subconscious, started programming who I was and um, the sense of belonging. You know, back then you don't think about, oh, do I belong here? Just you just go for the first time in my young life. I, I realized that I was different, you know, from the people that were laughing at me. I didn't understand the things they were saying, but I understood the physical and they were pushing me. And, you know, naturally, as a young kid, you're crying and just want to go home and wondering why, why are people so mean and why are they hurting me? Uh, but I didn't understand what they're saying. And so at that point, I didn't know the racial, racial toss that they were throwing at me, but I did feel it. And um, like with anything, you can feel, if you feel something physically, it goes a little deeper than just the words. And, you know, the, their actions were uh, speaking very loud to me. Did these incidents of racism continue uh, into middle school and high school? Yeah. You know, um, there's a lot of stories packed in from elementary all the way to junior high and uh, the sense of identity for me. And as we're growing up, you know, we naturally we didn't have a lot of money. So, you know, we lived in a trailer house, um, no hot water. Everyone to me weren't, they weren't of color. They weren't uh, a race. They were just friends of mine. And we're going through the same life together. And at that point, I didn't know that there was an elevated life out there. I didn't know that there was classism, that there is a, you go down a couple, a couple of miles down the street, that you'll be in a better neighborhood with less crime. I had no idea. And so I was growing up, um, the racial taunts continued. People were still, you know, kind of confused of what they're looking at and, you know, whatever their perspectives were, that was coming across uh, through racism and racial taunts, physical abuse, like they would start pushing me or hitting me for no, no reason at all. And, um, you know, I had to defend myself. And so slowly across elementary, going into junior high, I naturally found friends that would protect me. And, and by default for me, they happened to be, you know, some of them wearing gangs and, you know, I would be their friend quickly because we grew up in the same neighborhoods and we, we found a close bond, but they would protect me from all that hate. And, you know, I, so I started really associating myself with uh, people that were like-minded and the ones that were um, more about protection and stuff that I didn't, I didn't get at home. My dad wasn't the best father of the year. He was working many jobs, same as my mom. And, you know, because they were working so much, they didn't have time to raise me. My brother was raising me. The streets were raising me. Um, these friends that were happened to be in gangs were raising me and, you know, that was my life. That's my lens. And so going into high school, you know, just years of years of just these offhand remarks and, you know, the pervasive story from most every Asian American that you heard, you know, where the roll call is being called out and somebody misinterprets your name or enunciates your name incorrectly, including the teachers and would smirk and laugh and, um, you know, you, you tend to start having thick skin, but that anger and that hurt still, it just subconsciously starts being packed in layer after layer after layer with so many that I can't even remember. It just became numbing and it became a defense mechanism for me to be physically violent, like fight back and, and you know, no one's protecting you. You have friends and some move away and then you got to fend for yourself. This constant chase of identity and so I'm battling multiple things at this point, not feeling that I belong, one, two, that I don't want to be Asian American, three, why is everyone hating on me? 
Um, we, we, we already have to deal with poverty and now we're dealing with racism and classism and just trying to fit in. Yeah, it continued all the way to high school, you know, and you think that, you know, people learn there's stories out there and movies are made and yeah, there's such a, a stigma towards Asian Americans and all the way to the nineties. And even now, of course, um, so yeah, it's, it's been pervasive in my life and still to this day, still racial taunts here and there. So it's, um, sometimes it's a mind numbing at times. You said that as you got older, you started to associate more with people who could protect you, friends who were involved in gangs. Did you ever consider joining a gang yourself just, you know, for protection or for that sense of belonging? Yeah. You know, I, there is, um, two phases of my life when I was younger. Uh, I had friends that were in different, various, like various gangs. I didn't know any Asians back then. They just all, uh, Latino or they're black. And those were my best friends. And, um, I thought about joining gang, you know, to be honest, but just cause I also thought it was cool. It was like a lifestyle that I looked up to, but I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't a fighter. I was a video gamer and I was a nerd at heart. And that's why a lot of my friends, I don't even want to label them as gang bangers or gang members. I was just friends. And the way they would show up, we would play Nintendo together. They would say, yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. To their parents. And I saw things that I never, you don't read about often. This loyalty was something that I could feel. I, I felt protected, but then I felt there was a sense of community beyond like protection. It was, you know, knowing them beyond what, uh, you know, what people judge them as like these hard gangbangers that would, that don't care about society, don't care about anyone else, just themselves. And that was a, a false narrative in my mind. And I gravitated towards that. I never joined one per se. I just always hung around them. They were just friends to me. And the other phase was when I graduated high school, I started getting my first set of Asian friends in college. And some of the ones that I knew were from like Houston or Dallas, Texas, they were, they were also in gangs, but Asian gangs now. And, you know, they would, I naturally gravitated towards that because there was a knowing of how they maneuvered through life, the way they, their mindset was in terms of loyalty or this whole concept of ride or die. But there is a, there's an honor there, you know, and the way they treated each other. And, um, you know, I, I, I think that's, it's always been something that I felt in my heart that I would be always close to, but never something that I would join. Uh, not because I don't, I, I frown against it, but I just think that I wasn't made for that. I was always made for something else, but, um, I seamlessly went from group to group and it wasn't, didn't really matter what they were in, but my early formidable years, there were, there was definitely a layer of protection why I wouldn't hang out with them, for sure. For a while, things were looking up for Mike. He graduated college, became a successful businessman, and got married. But then he caught his wife cheating on him. That's when the alcohol abuse, suicidal thoughts, and depression kicked in. You know, being together with her for seven years, married for three, together for four there is a knowing that, you know, she was a person for me and, and I was so proud to be her husband, her partner. There's a title there. And when everything came crashing down, uh, my identity was rocked all over again. And it took me back to that childhood trauma. When I was married with her, 
you know, you, you hear a few things in your circle and you think that those things that you tell each other become truth um, in terms of how you deal with things or what's right, what's wrong. And there's also this concept of ride or die, right? So your friends are always just agreeing with you sometimes, not really seeing perspective like the other side. And I struggled with that. You know, I always thought, okay, I have my graduate degree and I learned about communications. I know what this means. But even in college, we don't talk about emotional intelligence unless you're in psychology or you're, you're getting some graduate degree in something elevated around sociology and studying the human mind and, and behaviors. You know, for me specifically, I didn't know any of that. And so right after that divorce, I was turning to old patterns, drinking and going out, being with friends because they would uplift me. And I didn't know that those thoughts, these, these dark moments that I couldn't get out of, I didn't know that was depression. I couldn't name it because I didn't do that work. I remember going into it, you know, people were starting to see patterns and Thankfully, some of my friends actually had a hard conversation. They knew it was going to be hard because there was going to be immediate rejection. My ego is going to reject it. And uh, I did. But if it wasn't for them either um, to come to talk to me, be soft and gentle, uh, I think I would have just kept on that slippery slope. When I first found out, a couple months later, I started to really think, what was life worth? You know, and started calling out sick to work. I wasn't doing anything. And um, these uh, thoughts of, Maybe it wasn't like better off without me, but it was like, what's the purpose and what's the purpose? And I didn't understand what that was for me anymore. And all the identity issues of being bullied, I said, man, maybe I'm not cut out for this. And that's when I was like, okay, this is really bad. I need to do something because I'm not feeling good. And I'm returning to one of my good friends and she told me, hey, I'm getting therapy at this place. They're actually really good. You want to try? I could probably get you a free session. And I did. Got a free session. And also that again saved my life. And I was so hell bent on what I was learning. It's it's so refreshing. And I was literally going like three times a week, paying out of pocket for each session because I believed in it so much and it was finally feeling like I was getting somewhere. So yeah, that was a huge, huge identity blow for me, uh, getting a divorce and um even with the stigma of being Korean American and getting a divorce, it's now a staying record, quote unquote, you know. So it, it was hard for me. For sure. You know, one thing I've heard from other Asian friends is that getting therapy or you know, even talking about mental health can be very taboo in some Asian households. Was it difficult for you to actually seek help for yourself? And was it something you felt comfortable telling your family about? You know, I, I didn't think about that. It was one of those things that I didn't even know. I just... I've always been good at expressing. I knew at that point there was something in my mind was something was wrong with me. I was short-circuiting somewhere in my head and my heart. There's something off. There was definitely a little shame, um, not really from the therapy, but from the divorce. And I would, I, I, I was shy to tell people that. You know, it came across in my mind. I started painting the story. It's like I was never married, and there was so much shame being built in and it was programmatic as becoming truth to me. And, um, I didn't tell my parents. I told my brother and him and I are pretty close. And I told him, uh, I just need some help. And he would be so like, he was, he would send me care packages. He would check up on me. I had multiple good friends always texting me. Hey, I'm here for you. How are you doing? You need to talk. I had a support system. Even then I just felt like there was 
shame talking about it. Maybe no one would really understand the things that I'm going through. Is there shame telling people that I, like I started having suicidal thoughts because I was so put together at that point. I, you know, seemingly was always positive. So how could they ever see me as something else? And again, identity issues of being put together, not having the right answers was such a, another blow for me. I needed to have those answers. You know, so a part of me was shielding from my friends that I was doing therapy at that moment, you know, and I think the stigma is real. Even now it's real. Even the way we say, Hey, I need help. I'm, I'm broken. All these things, the way we describe ourselves. Um, we have a lot more, we have a long way to go, but yeah, for me, there was definitely shame there. And, uh, this knowing of I'm not good enough yet, or I'm, there's parts of me that's broken. Around the same time you were hit with even more misfortune as a string of people in your life were diagnosed with cancer. Uh, and I know that one of those people was your father who did end up attempting suicide and later died from his injuries. And you've spoken earlier that you had a, a strained relationship with your father. Are you comfortable talking more about your final moments with him and, and what that was like for you? Yeah. So he was, a uh, you know, after the divorce and a few years, a couple of years later, just getting my cadence back and therapy constantly um, and never stopped. There was a moment, just cloud nine, you know, I, I was um, on top of my professional game. You know, I made it to the C-suite, getting paid really well, living a nice bachelor life in downtown LA and being in good health. Just everything was becoming elevated at that point, quote unquote elevated, whatever that's defined as, but everything seemed good. And then when my dad got diagnosed with cancer, and then, like you said, five other people got hit with cancer, uh, a string of people, you know, it's like my dad and my sister-in-law's cancer came back. Good friend passed away in front of us uh, with ovarian and my grandma and then my mom. Um, and just, it, it just didn't stop. And uh, at the end of 2019, another friend passed away from brain cancer. And towards my end of my dad's life, you know, he fought. He was terminal right when I started that operating officer job in 2018. And uh, but he's, he was fighting it, so we thought he could probably beat it. Um, but we didn't know the amount of stress that he was in and how much he had a he was going through. And right before the cancer spread and quadrupled in size in 2020. I also went through another breakup and I was going, I was dating someone and she was an amazing person. She still is an amazing person, but then that ended COVID happened. All these things were just happening on top of everything. And I remember getting the call from my brother and said, Hey, radiation just rocked dad. You, you're going to need to come home. I don't think he has a lot of time left. And in my mind, for some reason, I thought he was going to continue to fight. But then when I ended up coming back home, he was half his weight, you know, in this double digits now, like 95 pounds. And he was entirely emaciated, just didn't look like himself. It was hard to see. It's hard to look at. That same day I came was when they announced that it's spreading and he probably has two weeks to live. You might want to say your goodbyes. You know, that's when I started calling my relatives, just giving them an update of what's happening. And one of my aunts from Texas, she drove down that same night. We we're talking with my aunt, my mom, myself, and uh, my cousin was here, dropped her off, but then he ended up going back home to Houston. Uh, shortly later, 
you know, I, I hear a noise in my dad's bedroom and normally, um, he would clap or ring a bell to get our attention for like an ice cube. Couldn't really swallow much because I think his cancer is spreading all over his chest and all over pretty much. And I heard something and I didn't know what it was. And, you know, we heard a noise. And so we walked over. The door was locked. We finally got the door open. It really did feel like it was uh, forever and a day to get the door open because he locked it. Next thing we see is him inside the bathtub and there was just blood everywhere. And, you know, I really thought maybe his chemo port where they gave him injections burst open. And so my mom's crying, my aunt's crying. Uh, call the paramedics, call my brother. It was a mad dash. It just seemed like it was a, it was the most chaotic scene I've ever seen in my entire life. And by the time my brother comes over first, he lived pretty close, very calm and very stoic, just trying to take care of things. I couldn't go back in my dad's room for some reason. It was very hard to see that scene. And so I stayed outside on the phone, talking to the paramedics. They were talking to me on the phone, trying to help me calm down. My mom comes crawling out the bathroom. And I remember seeing her crawl out because um, at that point, she had six fractures in her back from a compound fracture uh, from osteoporosis and the chemo. Everything was just taking a toll on her body. And at that point, we found out, hindsight, that she fractured three more trying to pull them out the bathtub. So she's literally crawling out, and she's covered in blood. Paramedics finally come, and there's so many people. There are fire trucks, two ambulances, and there's a police officer interrogating me in real time, asking me about the details. And, you know, I, I, lost, I lost my cool. Uh, the police officer was just interrogating me like, he was almost looking at me like as if I did something. And I told him, get the fuck out of my house. Fuck you. And then I, and I, I yelled at him all, oh, you know, I was just so angry. Um, you know, it was just not the right timing. It was just not uh, a human thing to do to somebody. And I know they had their job to do, but that just wasn't right. And, you know, and uh, when the paramedics were talking, there's about 10 of them inside the house. It's chaotic. They're, they're radioing each other, and then that's when they said, uh, you know, 72-year-old Korean male slit the left wrist, slit right wrist, and slit neck. And, um, you know, I was in denial. I told him no. He fell. My brother grabbed my right shoulder. I remember it distinctly. And he just told me, hey, you, you saved his life. You did good. And, um, and that's when I saw him get rolled out uh, on a stretcher, wrist up in the sky, wrapped up both, and bandages all over his neck. and then, uh, wrapped up and he was losing consciousness. I think he lost so much blood and, um, they rolled him out. And of course I lost it. I was uncontrollable crying at that point. I couldn't, I couldn't stop. Did that for a couple hours. And, uh, you know, the hospital called and they said, Hey, we're not going to be able to put him under, uh, anesthesia because his cancer is so, sp it's so spread out. And if you put him under, he might not wake up. We, we made a decision just to stitch him up as best as he could on the wrist and the neck and try to give him a comfortable final week or two that he would have left. So we ended up getting him the next day. And for the next two weeks was our journey of talking to him, saying our goodbyes. And in those moments was when I finally told him everything. You know, I, I told him that I hated him when we were growing up and how hurtful all the things that he put us through, how much it impacted us, and how much I'm still dealing with it.
but it it was the first time I actually forgave him for anything. And this entire weight came off my shoulders and I proceeded to tell him, I love you. And, you know, you can go now, dad. It's okay. Um, we'll take care of mom. And even for me, I was like, I'll take care of my brother, my sister-in-law, and I'll do everything right by you. And it was our way to say goodbye. And um, he just grabbed my hand. And he looked at me and he couldn't speak. So I just nodded. And that was the first time I actually felt entirely close to my father and since I was younger. And there's pictures of us, you know, there's good moments there, but they're marred by a lot of alcoholism or, you know, physical, mental abuse and uh, what the world did to him too from um, racism and how it impacted and a domino effect back into our home. Those two weeks were instrumental. There's a lot of milestones in my life that changed me. And that was another one. But this one was the most impactful. And I'm still dealing with a lot of the hurt. And I don't think it ever goes away. But that ability to forgive him, for him to hold my hand was, was everything to me at that point. Like I said, Mike has been through more hardship than anyone should have to endure in a lifetime. Up next, he talks about how he got through it and why he decided to turn kindness into a career. Yeah, right after my dad passed away, you know, I was traveling back and forth from L.A. to Austin. And um, it was the first time I actually needed God. Uh, I, I'm not the most spiritual person. I dabble in Buddhism to Christianity. I study everything. But I needed something. And um, I remember my pastor, he was the first person outside my family, outside like a close circle that I told. And he gave me such a safe space. Uh, no preaching to me, no reading a Bible verse. He just prayed for me as like a friend. And uh, at that moment, I was like, okay, I need something. So right when I went back to LA, uh, after a couple of weeks after my dad passed, kind of situate myself. I got baptized in Santa Monica, went to the blue waters there in, in LA and got dunked inside and gave my life up. And I said, you know, I believe in something bigger than me. And at that moment, there was like this feeling in me. It's like, I got to do something. And my entire life, I was mentioning to you that I was chasing this identity, this broken self that I was always trying to heal. I was trying to find something. And there is a constant narrative, which was founded by my mother. And it was this kindness. And this kindness was this person, my mom, that would never complain about anything. She went through such a hard life as a woman, just hard, dedicating her life to my dad, us, uh, giving up her dreams, but we became her dreams. And to me, it's like the ultimate sacrifice, you know, and that was my true north. And that was my example of what kindness looks like. And I had this idea called Some Neat Place. You know, it was supposed to be a digital agency in 2009, 2010. My friend actually came up with the name and that was brilliant. I loved it. And in 2015, 2016, I was dabbling all types of places and I thought it was going to be a cool whiskey bar name. And I kept it. I kept it and it didn't turn to fruition. So I, and in this moment, after all the trauma that I've gone through and I look back at my life, I said, okay, this is going to be a kindness company out of all things. And selfishly, when I started some new place, I just wanted to feel like this world was a little bit better. And selfishly, I wanted to hear good stories because my life was filled with negative ones. And I started telling them. And by default, it will start to heal me in the inside. So that's how everything began. It was finding Jesus and trying to find my purpose. 
and selfishly doing this. But then I was like, you know what? I think there's a bigger calling and it's not just making a lot of money in LA hustling. It was trying to make this world better. So people like myself, people like my dad could skip that entire process and live a better life without the racism, without the drama, without the hurt, without the pain. And what would life have been like if we wouldn't have had that? We would have had a picture-perfect life. I'm thankful and grateful that I went through all that because I'm sitting here and talking to you about things like this, you know, and I think um, one life really does matter. And my life mattered. My dad's life mattered. And, and if I'm able to help people with that, then why not, you know? And it's, it's filling my cup every single day. And that's when some neat place really did begin after all that trauma. That is incredible. And what does some neat place do now? You know, back then I was just telling stories like I was mentioning, um, how one kind that can really change the world and how I wasn't really chasing influencers. I was chasing my heart, whatever people I came across. And I didn't want to just interview my friends. I was easy. I wanted to interview random strangers that were the local community. And what were they doing to uplift each other in the heart of the pandemic too? And there's so many remarkable people out there. When I think about the local community and, and people that are creators and influencers, I would start chasing my heart. And it wasn't about getting clout uh, or getting max spread socially. It was more about where does my heart feel good? And through the storytelling, I started thinking about, you know, I want to do this full time and I want to do this all the time and tell stories, but I want to do it in such a way where it's done differently. And so right now where Sunny Place is going is through the creative lens from fashion, food, music, art, I want to show the world how this one kind act, this act of kindness can change the world and dent it where people could feel it. So whether it's um, content creation events, but the bread and butter right now is that with 214 million businesses out there and creators that are just growing in numbers, I want to collaborate with every single one of them and to use kindness as a catalyst using their platform, using their service to show the world what kindness can look like and create bespoke programs and projects with them and form this kindness network where it's like a LinkedIn, but it's not about who you know. It's just about your membership fee is based on how kind you are. What are you doing to disrupt this world and in a way we're making it better, safer, and um, more kind. And uh, so just like me, Everyone else has trauma. Everyone else has gone through something. So by default, I, we coined it as a perfectly imperfect kindness company because we are imperfect. And there's perfection with that too. And there's beauty with that. That's great. I think we could all use a little more kindness in our lives. So very appreciative for the work that you do. Thanks, Annie. And where can we find out more about Some Neat Place? You can visit us at someneatplace.com or visit us on Instagram. We're at someneatplace then we're going to continue to pump out these stories. So hopefully everyone can pay attention and get to be a part of our community. Great. And I'll put those links in the description of the podcast episode as well. Thanks so much for being here with us today. Is there anything else you wanted to add? No, thank you so much for the time and giving people like myself a, a safe space to kind of share our stories. And then hopefully that impacts everyone else. So I love what you're doing at Misfits as well. Thank you for listening to Misfits. Please give the show five stars wherever you get your podcasts. You can also write a review on Apple Podcasts. 
Please follow us on Twitter at ACXP Misfits and Instagram at ACXP Misfits, where you can also send us a message with ideas for the show or let us know if you or anyone else would like to come on as a guest. We'd love to have you.